Well, good morning, church. Uh, This morning, we'll be turning in our Bibles to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. And if you're using the Bible in your pew that's in front of you, I believe it's page 362, 362. If it's not, just uh, yell out the right number. Ezra chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I'll just share with you guys just a real quick story. Um, for, for college, I, I attended a military school, and you can always find yourself doing one to three things at this school. You're all either studying for some sort of class or exam, you're either working out, or you are training. Now, now training makes sense because you're at a military school, but then also the events that uh, surrounded uh, se- September 11th, 2001, occurred during my freshman year. And so we knew, all knew that as soon as we graduate, we would go off to war. And like one particular training exercise kind of st- stands out to me. It's this, I just happened to be in the command of a squad, about six people, and a simulated exercise. And what you're supposed to do is, well, one of your squad mates, they are severely injured, right? And you need to get medical attention to them as soon as possible, right? But there's this ravine that you have to traverse. You have to get across this ravine. And you have a couple of tools to aid you. The instructor gives you a rope that does not go across the ravine. You know, it just barely gets there. Uh, you can use whatever gear you have. You can use your fatigues, helmet, rifle. Uh, you have a couple of planks, a couple of poles. And you need to do this, traverse the ravine safely, quickly, with your injured teammate in 15 minutes. So the instructor is like, all right, so you have any questions? No, good, okay, go, <laughs> right? Uh, oh, oh yeah, I forgot, uh, like, like so just, here's a stick of gum, some lint I found, hopefully that helps you out, go. Now you still have 15 minutes. Now, the whole point of this exercise, I mean, we're all thinking this is impossible. <laughs> this is impossible to do. But the whole point of the exercise wasn't for you to figure out a way to accomplish this feat. The instructor knew it was impossible. You, you couldn't do it. But the point was, how do you manage your team when everybody's thinking this is impossible? People start fighting. Uh, this, is, this isn't going to work out. People give up, give up hope. People who might have a, you know, more of a type A personality, they'll try to take command and push people aside. How do, how do you manage all this in an impossible task? You know, many of us sometimes think that the Christian walk is an impossible task, and that's true to a particular degree. But sometimes we think that God is standing over us, you know, looking at us and saying, hey, uh, you really need to get your life together. Get your life together. I want all your friends and family come to know me, place their faith in me. I want you to do this, this, and that. Oh, and by the way, with me being God, I got so many things on my agenda to-do list. I'm going to step away. But, but don't worry. I have faith in you. Depend upon yourself. You got it. Go forth and conquer. Uh, the way I just described the Christian faith is not true. <laughs> right? <laughs> It is impossible if you view the Christian life that way. So I want to encourage you this morning, always know, always recognize that God is always with his people. 
that God is always leading his people, even when it doesn't feel that way, right? The main point of this text, and I'll say it a few times for your sermon, the main point of this whole passage is that God, the sovereign king, controls all circumstances and hearts. Therefore, trust and depend upon God's promises and leading. I'll say it again. God, the sovereign king of the universe, controls all circumstances and hearts. Therefore, trust and depend upon God's promises and leading. So that being said, please stand with me as I read Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. It reads this way. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah any of his people among you. May his God be with him. And may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and Levites, Everyone whose spirit God had roused prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. All their neighbors supported them with silver articles, gold, goods, livestock, and valuables, in addition to all that was given as a free will offering. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and had placed in the house of his gods. King Cyrus of Persia had them brought out under the supervision of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. 30 gold basins, 1,000 silver basins, 29 silver knives, 30 gold bowls, 410 various silver bowls, and 1,000 other articles. The gold and silver articles totaled 5,400. Shishbazer brought out all of them when the exiles went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Please be seated. We as a church are actually going through the book of Ecclesiastes, but this morning while Joel is away, I'm bringing to you the book of Ezra. Now the book of Ezra you know, doesn't really get a lot of attention. You know, it's not a large book, relatively small. It's in the Old Testament, and actually people may be more familiar with the book of Nehemiah. Actually, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah back in the day used to be combined as one book, but over time it got separated. The book of Nehemiah talks about how the people of God are leaving their exile, they're coming back to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. But the book of Ezra talks about the same, very similar story happens before Nehemiah, but the book of Ezra the people of God come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple where worship and the presence of God is recognized. 
Now, in reading historical narratives, it's very important to understand and know the context that you're reading. The context, you need to know about the political circumstance, the culture, the geography, even the history, because through those avenues, you can really understand what is going on in a text, and then you can properly apply that text to your life. So with that being said, let me just give you a quick rundown on the history leading up to Ezra chapter one. So the first king of Israel is, or was, King Saul, right? He uh, started off like okay as a king, right? Uh, but then he quickly went downhill, right? He was not a good king of Israel. That's the first king of Israel. The next king of Israel, when I say king of Israel, I'm referring to the unified 12 tribes of Israel. The next king of Israel is David. Now, David was a great king. A great king. Somebody that everybody looked up to. Now, yes, he had many sins. Those sins should not be overlooked. But unlike King Saul and other bad kings, even when he sinned, he repented and turned to God. As a matter of fact, all the following kings after King David are measured up against King David. You see how good of a king they were. So after King David, after he dies, the next king is his son, King Solomon. Now, King Solomon, he's known for his wisdom, his fame, and his wealth. And he's a pretty good king, not as great as King David, but he's still a good king. When King Solomon dies, the next king, his son, is King Rehoboam. All right, so now King Solomon is known for his wisdom. King Rehoboam is known for his foolishness. All right, uh, we won't get into the details, but he was faced with a decision to make for his country, and he chose poorly, right? And the kingdom of Israel rebelled. There's a civil war. Actually, the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms. We had the northern kingdom called the kingdom of Israel. It can be a little bit confusing. That capital was Samaria. And then you have the kingdom to the south, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. That capital was Jerusalem. Now, all the kings in the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, every single king was bad. <laughs> They were all evil. They all rebelled and rejected God. They did whatever they wanted. They sinned, and they never repented. Uh, God, in his love, grace, and mercy, he warned them, turn back to me, I will restore you. Turn back to me, or you will be punished. God sent prophets, words of instruction, turn back to me. And as the king goes, since they're all bad kings, the people go typically, and they never repented. And so God used the kingdom of Assyria, if you're looking at a map, it's modern Syria to the north. God used the kingdom of Assyria to conquer and destroy the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Now the kingdom of the northern kingdom, they had 10 tribes. And you might have heard about the lost tribes of Israel because when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, you never hear of them again in the Bible or even in history. Uh, they actually get assimilated, they get dispersed throughout the land, and they are gone, gone, gone. Now the southern kingdom, two remaining tribes, was Benjamin and Judah. Side note, the tribe of Levi, they don't get a lot of land. Levites serves as priests in the north and south. 
So really, you have three tribes in the south, but Judah, Benjamin, and the tribe of Levi. Now, you actually have some good kings with the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And for the most part, yes, they follow God, but then also they also rebel against God and turn away from God. And God, as you can predict, warns them, lovingly warns them, turn to me. Do not be rebellious. I can restore you. If you do not, I will punish you. Now, the southern kingdom, they see what happens to the northern kingdom, and they're like, yeah, we don't want that. We don't want to be destroyed. So for a few years, they actually do well. But eventually, they turn against God and rebelled against God. So God uses the kingdom of Babylon to conquer them. Of course, you probably know the most famous king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. He comes in and removes, takes the people of Israel into exile to modern-day Iraq. Babylon. So while they're in exile, the king of Persia, King Cyrus, he conquers the Babylonian kingdom. And that's where we pick up in Ezra chapter 1. So with that being understood, I'm going to actually go through a few things in Ezra chapter 1. We're actually going to look at two kings and the hearts of men. Two kings and the hearts of of men. And throughout this passage, please understand the main point. God, the sovereign king, who controls all circumstances and hearts, you can trust and depend upon God's promises and God's leading. So the first king, King Cyrus. Now, if you're a student of history, you might have heard that name. You might be familiar with that name, King Cyrus of Persia. He's actually known as Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great. Actually, you don't get that nickname, the Great, for doing small and insignificant things, right? You have to do great big things. I mean, we all know of Alexander the Great of the Macedonian Empire, or maybe Peter the Great of Russia, but Cyrus the Great. Here, let me just quickly go over his resume so that you get, just get a feel of how great he was. All right, so at this time period, the Persian Empire was the largest empire the world had ever seen. So if you're looking at a map, kind of to the west, southwest, the empire spanned from Egypt all the way to the north, which is modern-day Turkey. Back in the day, it was called Asia Minor or, or Anatolia. And all the way to the east in India. At that time period, it was the largest empire the world had ever seen. As a matter of fact, he conquered what was previously the largest empire the world had ever seen, the Babylonian Empire made famous under King Nebuchadnezzar. So this is Cyrus the Great. Actually, he actually ruled for about 30 years. He ruled until he was 70. Now, that might not seem a long time for some people, but when you're ruling a giant empire, uh, everybody wants to take you out, right? Everybody wants to kill you, inside your own empire and outside your own empire. So he ruled for 30 years, 70 years old, that's a nice long time. But what made his rule so significant? Why, why could he last so long? Well, when he would conquer a region, he would actually adopt their customs, their practices, and worship their god. So that's what he do, to just make people, oh, hey, you seem like a pretty cool king. So when we read here in this passage, what King Cyrus is doing, he's providing lip service to the god of Israel. He's not a true follower of Israel, but he's paying lip service to 
this God. But see, one of the things that you really need to understand is that God uses anybody he wants. Whether people recognize him as king, whether people love him as Lord, or whether people obey him as ruler, God will use anyone, whether you believe in him or not. Here, let's just look at this passage, King Cyrus. In the first year, King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom. And I put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. You you hear his name constantly, constantly, constantly. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. You know, it seems like this king is pretty powerful. He has a lot going on for him, right? But see, we just talked about how God can use anybody. So actually, this king, this first king, King Cyrus, actually points to another king, and that's the second king that we're going to look at. And that's God, the sovereign ruler, king of all. Here, I'm going to read the same passage and just slightly put emphasis on where King Cyrus is mentioned. Uh, So you see this other king, God, the king, the ruler of all. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fill the word of the Lord, spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. So even here, even as King Cyrus is talking, right, uh, yes, he has power and authority, but you see how he's actually subservient to this other king. God is using his own words to recognize, point to this overarching ruler of the universe. I mean, think about it. Why is God's promises, why are God's promises so trustworthy? Why can you depend upon God's word? He says something, and you can count on it. It will happen. Why is that the case? Well, a big part of the reason is because God is sovereign. That means God controls all things. I mean, think about it in this passage where God gives this message to Jeremiah. For the time he gives this message to Jeremiah that he's going to send his people into exile and actually redeem his people out of exile, from that time period, God gives that word all the way to Ezra chapter 1. It is roughly 90 years. Roughly 90 years. Like, a lot can happen in 90 years. I mean, I mean this year is 2023. Just think back, if you were around, praise God, uh, back to 1933, right? 1933. A lot of things have happened since 1933, right? Forget about 1933. Let's just think about, like, 2003. A lot of things have happened. Any, any one thing, you could probably say it's untrue, could throw off God's word, right? <laughs> I mean, a lot of things have thrown off our entire nation, the entire world. So who is God who can say something that will happen in 90 years? You might have heard this kind of secular proverb. I'll just say this secular proverb real quick. For, for the need of a nail, 
the shoe was lost, referring to a horseshoe. For the need of a shoe, the horse was lost. For the need of a horse, the rider was lost. For need of a rider, the battle was lost. For the loss of the battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the need of a horseshoe nail. What that proverb is trying to convey is that something as small and seemingly insignificant as a horseshoe nail can totally impact the direction of an entire nation. But yet we see here where God says something, nothing stops the word of God from fulfilling. Nothing can stop God. Please understand this. No circumstance or person, angel or demon, storm or molecule is outside of the control of God. I'll say it again. No circumstance or person, no angel or demon, no storm or molecule is outside of the control of God. God is sovereign. Here, let me encourage you just with God's word, and I recognize that this will actually discourage some people. But let me encourage the people of God. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the, of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Or how about Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into, into the lap, but his very decision is from the Lord. Or how about Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, or from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Psalm 9, verses 9 through 12. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. It's conveying this idea that God, the sovereign king, controls everything. He controls hearts, circumstances, every single thing. And so therefore, his word, it is dependable. You can trust him. So this passage, I mentioned that we're going to look at two kings. The first king, Cyrus the Great, the second king, God. And lastly, we'll look at the hearts of men. The hearts of men. So let's look at verses five through eight. The question that I want you to think about is that if God can control kings, well then, does he have the right or can he control common people like you and me? Yes. Aye, that's right. <laughs> Let me read this. So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin along with the priests and Levites. Everyone whose spirit God had roused prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house. All their neighbors supported them with silver articles, gold, goods, livestock, and valuables. In addition to all those given as a free will offering, 
King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and had placed in the house of his gods. King Cyrus of Persia had them brought out under the supervision of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out, to Bazar, the prince of Judah. You see here that God, he's not only moving the hearts of kings, but then he's moving the everyday person, moving their hearts. He moves our hearts. Praise God, right? God is sovereign. God rules all. Actually, in this passage, you know, you know, with the people of Israel being moved out for the Persian kingdom, and they're getting all this gold, their neighbors are giving them stuff as they move out, it just like flashes back to when God removed the people of Israel out of Egypt, and they were giving them gold, treasure. Hey, just get out of our land, get out of here. Like, we don't want to see you again. And actually, they have more stuff leaving than what they came in with. You know, what is also interesting that is implied in this passage, and if you know your biblical history, not only does God move the people of Israel out of the Persian kingdom to go back to Jerusalem, actually God moves other people's hearts, the people of Israel, to actually stay in Persia. Actually stay in Persia. Just, just think about it. God calls some to leave and some to stay. If you're familiar with the story of Esther, right, the queen who won the beauty pageant and marries the king. All right, so Esther, she marries King Xerxes. And King Xerxes is just a couple kings removed from King Cyrus there in Persia. And you have the story of Haman and everything else, Mordecai. All that takes place in Persia. So God calls some people to stay and some people to leave. So if I've been talking about the sovereignty of God so much, you know, you and I, we all know. If God really is the sovereign ruler, like here's the question, why is it so hard for me, for us, to trust God, to depend upon God's promises, to depend upon God's leading? But yeah, so intellectually we can know that God controls everything, but let's be honest. It is sometimes difficult to trust God. Uh, there are many different reasons why. I'm not going to go through every single potential reason. I just look at one. One reason might be because of fear. We fear of what might happen if we follow God. We fear physical pain. We fear potentially losing our lives or losing friendships. We fear what people might say about us or things that we might not be able to pursue in life because we follow God. It all boils down to fear. You know, the apostle Peter, he was a very close follower of Jesus. Actually, Jesus asked Peter the question, who do people say that I am? And Peter, through the Holy Spirit, he, he gives a very direct and clear answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You see, after making that statement, Jesus goes on. Jesus says, well, I'll start talking about the things that he's gonna go through, meaning Jesus. He's gonna have to suffer, die, and eventually be raised. And Peter, 
He just keeps on going. He just works it, works out. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. Like, that's wrong. You, the divine Savior that we've all been waiting for, the Savior of the world, God incarnate, you're telling me that you're going to have to suffer and die? Side note, all right, if Jesus suffers and dies, you better believe the disciples suffer and die, right? Uh, yeah, time out, Jesus. Like, I think you have this all wrong. You are God. This is not going to happen. And what does Jesus do? He sternly corrects them. He, he beats Peter. But then Jesus goes on, and this is what he says. This is what Jesus says after he says that. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 27. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You know, what is Jesus getting at here? Well, probably one of the things that Jesus is getting at is that there's this idea, this idea of the good life, right? You make a certain amount of money, you uh, achieve certain goals that you might have for your life, you do or experience X, Y, Z, you kind of cultivate your own garden so that you and maybe your family or loved ones can actually breathe in this crazy world, right? That's, that's, that's kind of like the good life. And what Jesus is getting that here at is, is that yes, you, you can pursue that, and that may provide life, may provide purpose, may provide happiness for a season, but when we die, which we all will unless the Lord continues to tarry. When we die and when we stand before God, all those things that you thought were the good life, you're, like, you're gonna hate that. <laughs> it's like, what I thought was a good life, it was not the good life. And I'm standing before God, the ruler of all. You know, it's funny, just so, we can get so wrapped up in pursuing the good life. But what Jesus goes on further saying, hey, the world, the world tells you that if you follow me, if you give up your life to follow me, you are actually suffering if you're dying. That's what the world tells you. But Jesus, he's the sovereign ruler. He is making a promise that if you pursue me, you will actually have life. Now, it's a perspective shift and if I'm being honest, which I am, I don't know why I said if, I'm being honest here, <laughs> like sometimes it's very difficult to, to just live, live that out on a day-by-day -day basis. Looking at Jesus and recognizing that following him, yeah, it's not boring. <laughs> uh, it's not overall painful. It can be painful at times. It's not uh, stupid. No, following Jesus is life-giving. As a matter of fact, the more you feed upon this bread of life, the more you kind of desire more of this bread of life, the more your taste buds get attuned to this bread of life, 
the more you find this bread of life fulfilling, right? And you kind of reject just horrible substitutes. That's who Jesus is. You know, Jesus talks about giving up your life to follow him. In the World War II, there's this kind of famous, uh, gnarly, old, good general named General Patton. And he gives this kind of speech to his troops, and I will uh, clean up this speech. So, <laughs> so he gives his speech this to, to his troops. Uh, he talks to his troops that, hey, uh, I know you're young, and you have the idea that you want to give your life for your country. I mean, that's what you're fighting for, to give your life for your country. No, you got it all wrong. <laughs> Make the enemy give their life for their country. You are supposed to live. What I want to kind of use that as an analogy is just that sometimes we think that, hey, I'm just preparing for that one day where I get questioned about my faith in Jesus and I'll give the right answer and I'll lose my life for it. That's the only thing I'm working towards. It is a day-by-day loving and following, living for Jesus. That's what you should be more focused on. Yes, I pray that we will all be faithful to the end. But don't look at the end as that's the end goal. Uh, It's every single day living for the sovereign king. You know, Jesus here, we're talking about trusting God's promises. Jesus makes a promise here at the end of this passage. He says, for the Son of Man, referring to himself, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I mean, you've all heard that joke before. Good news, Jesus is coming. Bad news, Jesus is coming. Jesus is making a promise, and we've all this morning been talking about how his promises are true, they are dependable. If God is making this promise, the call is for all people to turn and cling to this sovereign king. You turn to Jesus, and you gain the greatest gift you could ever dream. You turn from your own way of life and turn to follow and trust in Jesus. That it, what, that's what it means to repent. Turning to Jesus, following Jesus, and trusting Jesus is a daily practice. Why, why is it a daily practice? Because every day we sin, and every day we need the forgiving hand of Jesus. So let me leave with this closing word, what I've said about five or six times already. God the sovereign king who controls all hearts and circumstances. You can trust and depend upon God's promises and his leading. I mean, just as a side note, even this morning, I am uh, so thankful to God, his word, his Holy Spirit. Uh, Andrew mentioned in a prayer that I was sick. Probably got a couple hours of sleep and threw up all night I'm here this morning under the power of God because he is dependable. He is trustworthy. And his, God, and his word will go out and it will accomplish what he desires it. Especially when I'm weak. 
especially when I have to depend upon God himself. So all praise goes to him. Let me close in prayer. (laughs) Heavenly Father, you are God and we are not. Let us rest in that truth. Let us recognize that truth. And in that truth, turn to you. Depend upon you. Rest in you. Thank you so much that you are sovereign. Please, Lord, guide us and help us not to take things under our own power, but to follow your leading and to depend upon your promises. Now, Lord, I pray for all people who do not know you. According to your wisdom, according to your sovereign plan, may you turn people's hearts to you. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.